Well, as I said, we're starting a brand new sermon series um, this morning, and uh, I am just glad you're here. If you're watching online, we're glad that you're with us. We're thankful for this technology that keeps us connected uh, in this time. Um, I I just want to say we're really in this Good King series studying the book. We're going to do a Bible study in the book of 2 Chronicles. And I didn't tell you that before now because of the response that you just gave me. Um, because if I would have told you we were going to do a study in the book of Second Chronicles, many of you would have been like, oh, this is the two months that I'm organizing my sock drawer. Um, but what I hope is that after this morning, you're going to discover that this is something you should be very excited about because we're going to be looking at these kings and we're going to be studying the lives of these kings. And As we look at the good kings, what you find whenever you study any of the kings from the Old Testament, there is um, a couple of phrases that come up over and over and over in the Bible. It's a phrase that says this, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then there's another phrase that says, he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so as as the Bible talks about one of the kings, it'll say one of those two things. And and we're going to talk about the kings that were the good kings. We're going to talk about the kings that the Bible says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And as we study uh, this book, and we're going to look at some other passages as well, um, and as we dive into this, and so some of you um, just are like, you know, hey, I I love when we've been in a topical thing and we've been talking about Engage for a while. Um, And then others of you are like, I just want to do some more deep Bible study. This is for you, all right? I mean, you're going to really love just diving in and and getting into God's Word. And I want to encourage you, if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, bring your Bible in the weeks to come because this is going to be one of those where you're going to want to write in the margins of your Bible. And do you know that God doesn't get mad at you when you write in your Bible? Uh, It's okay for you to do that. And so you can write in your Bible. um, that that You're going to want to take some notes in this. In fact, um, if you don't have notes this morning, and you want some notes, if you raise your hand, one of our auditorium hosts will bring you the notes. Um, And if you're online or you have your smartphone with you, you can uh, just click on uh, the image that's on the screen and it'll bring you to the YouVersion notes this morning. But whenever we study God's Word, we need to do two things. Number one, we need to to gain some information. We We need to know we need to know the Word. Um, It's important. It's powerful. It's life-giving. But the other thing that needs to happen whenever we study God's Word is we need to get to know the God of the Word. We don't just need to know God's Word. We need to know the God of the Word. And so what I mean by that is sometimes so many of us, we just want a lot of information. Just give me more information. Give me more. I want to take more notes. I want to get, I want to get smarter. I want to get... And, and here's the thing. Sometimes we all have way too many notes. We've got binders. If you're like me, you've got binders full of notes that um, some of us have way too much information and we don't have enough life transformation. And so my hope and my prayer is that as we go through this, we won't just get smarter about the kings, but that we'll have some life transformation. We'll be able to say, God, what is it that you want to do in my heart? What can I learn from the mistakes of these kings so that I can be better, so that I can grow, so that I can be transformed more into your image. If you remember the Pharisees, the ones that ultimately had Jesus arrested and and crucified by the Romans, the the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they knew God's word, 
but they didn't know the God of the Word. They missed the God of the Word, even in the midst of all of the information. And, and God help us to not be in that place. And so we're going we're gonna to look for some information, but more importantly, we're going to seek for some life transformation in this series. And, and my hope is, is that as we study uh, these kings, um, we're going to discover what God wants to speak to us each and every week in this time. And so um, for those of you who are new to the church, new to, new to Bible study, um, you need to know that the, the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt for a long, long time. Uh, God sends Moses to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. They wander around in the desert for a while. They finally cross over the Jordan River, enter into the promised land. And once they enter into the promised land, uh, there's a whole book of the Bible called the book of Judges. And the reason that the book is called the book of Judges is because God was their king. They had one king and he was God. And then God, their king, would periodically, when they were in need, raise up someone to help them in a crisis, and he would raise up a judge. And it wasn't the kind of thing where people volunteered to be a judge, I'll, I'll do it, you know. It wasn't the kind of thing where there was an election for who's going to be the judge. It was God said, you're going to be the judge. God appointed somebody, they helped them through the crisis, and then God continued to be in charge. But the people didn't like having to wait and having to trust that God would raise up a judge to deliver them in different times. And they wanted a king like everybody else. And so in your notes, the first blank that's there is just this. We want a king. We want a king. Um, they, they absolutely uh, wanted a king. And we see in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and I know we, I said it's going to be a study in Chronicles, but I got to do a little bit of introduction here to set us up. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 to 18, before we talk about the kings, we need to talk about why did they have a king in the first place? Because they had one king, it was God, and God was going to raise up judges, but this is why that we even have to talk about the kings. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 says this, finally, all of the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old. They probably could have phrased that nicer, better, a little softer, gentler, but that's what they said. You're now old. Your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Now, I know none of us have ever said, I just want what everybody else has. I mean, you look around and you see other things that other people have. Like, why, why can't I have that? Why can't I have That's what they were doing. I, we just want to be like all the other nations around us. Samuel was displeased with the request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And this was the warning he said. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to the chariots and charioteers, making them run before his chariots. 
Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. Some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He will take and he will take your mule and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. And he will demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. Now listen to verse 18. And when that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. This is really a powerful, powerful passage. Many of you might be familiar with C.S. Lewis. He's the, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and, and many other uh, really powerful books. He was a, a wonderful theologian. And C.S. Lewis said that the best picture of hell is hell will be when God finally reluctantly gives us what we have demanded all along. And for those people that say, God, I don't want you in my life. God, I don't need you in my life. God, get out of my life. I just want to do my own thing. I want to go my own direction. That hell will be when God finally and reluctantly says, I will give you what you've asked for. And he removes his presence from us completely. And that will be so horrible, we can't even wrap our minds around what that will be like. And I think what we see here in this, this passage is the moral of the story is be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for because God just might say, okay. And what we're going to discover as we look at these kings is it was a train wreck. It was a really, really bad situation. But the people demanded it and God said, okay. I'll give you what you asked for. And so uh, in your notes, if you want to follow along, uh, there was the United Kingdom first. There was 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and so the United Kingdom uh, started off with Saul. The people said, hey, we want a king. And so Samuel uh, anoints Saul uh, to be the first king. And I could do a whole sermon series on Saul. We're not going to do that. This is all you need to know. Saul was terrible. It was bad. It went really, it, it started off really well. It went south really fast and it was just really bad. So that's Saul. Uh, after Saul was King David, and everybody knows about King David. He was, you know, young David who killed Goliath um, from the story of David and Goliath. And um, there's just this, this idea of uh, what 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 14 says, that David was a man after God's own heart. He was wholehearted. I mean, David wholeheartedly pursued God. Now, there were a couple times where David wholeheartedly went the other direction into sin. But then when God confronted him, he wholeheartedly repented. And then he, I mean, David was just kind of a wholehearted kind of guy. He was all in. Sometimes he was all in this way. Sometimes he was all in this way. But, but he was all in no matter which way he went. And, and God says that he was a man after God's own heart. Every single king after David is compared to David. David was the gold standard of what a king should be like. And even though he missed the mark in some significant areas, he, he was so 
uh, on point in so many other areas that he is the gold standard and every other king is compared to David. After David was his son, Solomon. And we're going to talk about Solomon today. Um, but he really led Israel. This is still in the United Kingdom with all 12 tribes. He really led Israel into their golden age. I mean, they had the broadest borders. They had the most wealth. They, they were everything that they wanted to be under Solomon's reign. And so, uh, but the other thing that Solomon did is Solomon modeled a divided heart. So if David had a wholehearted pursuit of God, Solomon had a divided heart. That he was halfway following God and halfway following the things of the world. And what happens when you have a king that has a divided heart? What happens to the nation? It's divided, right? It's the same thing. Parents, hear me on this. It's the same thing when we have a divided heart. Parents... If we follow God sometimes and follow other things other times, our kids will decide what they want to pursue. If we don't have a wholehearted pursuit of God, our kids will pick up on that and they will pursue the choice that they have, that, that we have to be wholly committed to the Lord because the next generation down oftentimes goes in other directions. And so what we see in this is we have a divided-hearted king and the nation divides. And so in your notes, let's look at the divided kingdom there. Um, the northern kingdom of Israel, and this is all introduction, and we're not going to do this every week. Normally, we'll just jump into a king, but I got to set the stage for this. The northern kingdom of Israel had 10 tribes, lasted 200 years, had 19 kings, and all of them were evil. Every single one. We're not even going to talk about them. They're just all bad. Like, Go read in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, uh, just they were really bad. Uh, so we're not even going to, we're going to interact with them a few times through this series because there'll be some kings in the northern kingdom that will interact with some of the kings from the southern kingdom that were good kings. But mostly we're going to skip over these guys. The southern kingdom of Judah was two tribes. It lasted 350 years and had 20 different kings. All of them were descendants of King David, and eight of these kings were good. Just eight. So if you think about that, that there were between the, the 19 kings in the north and the 20 kings, out of 39 kings, there were only eight of them that were good. Now what's interesting about this, and we're going to look at seven of these, one of them, one of the eight good kings. There's only like a couple of verses for, we can't do a whole sermon on that. Uh, but of the seven kings we're going to look at, that one of them, um, he was actually really bad. His name was Manasseh. He was really terrible his entire reign until the very last moment. And then he kind of turned back to God. And so he ended well. And so he's lumped in with the good kings, even though he was really bad most of his reign. But most of these other kings, hear me, actually not most, all, all but Manasseh, all of these good kings ended badly. All of these good kings started off well, but by the end of their life, they were not in a good place. And so what I want us to do in this series is we're going to uh, kind of look at each one and we're going to start with Solomon but as we, as we look at these kings, we'll do a quick overview of some of the good things from their life. But really, I want us to drill in and I want us to focus in. What was the character flaw? 
What was the problem? What was the thing that turned their life south so that we can learn from that and we can avoid those things in our own lives? And I'm just going to say, I know it's June and I know it's July. And this series is kind of over the summer. And I know a lot of you are going to be traveling at different times. There's going to be vacation. I cannot encourage you enough for the next eight weeks. If you're out of town, if you miss one of these weeks, go online and watch it. The technology that we have makes it possible for you to not miss any of these messages. And I'm telling you, we need all of these. Because all of us have different weak points. All of us have different places where we say, okay, Lord, well, you know, what is it that I need to grow in? And I believe God has an important message for all of us in every single one of these. And so last week I was on the Appalachian Trail. But as soon as we got to a signal where we actually had a signal, I was able to go on and I was able to uh, experience Pastor Ellis's message. And I was able to kind of hear what God had to say to me through Pastor Ellis. And I just want to encourage you, no matter where you're at, no matter where you're traveling, don't vacation from God. Take a vacation from work. Don't vacation from God and include worship in your vacation. Be a part of that. So um, let's pray and then we're going to jump in to talking about Solomon. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is active, it is alive, that it cuts into our hearts. Lord, I pray that as we study these kings, that you would teach us some lessons, that you would convict us where we need conviction, that we would have life transformation above everything else, Lord. I pray that you would transform our hearts because of this time of studying your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So before we get into Solomon, let me tell you a revolutionary war story. Um, I love history. I love particularly the revolutionary war history era. I, I love, I've read countless books. Um, just, it's fascinating to me just how all of that un, unpacked and unfail, unfolded and, and the leaders uh, that were a part of it. There is a, a battle that took place in September and October of 1777 called the Battle of Saratoga. And it's a famous battle uh, in the Revolutionary War. In fact, it was a couple of years in, it was, um, it was a pivotal battle in, in the Revolution. In fact, many people would have said if that battle would have gone the other direction, it, it could have changed the entire Revolution. And um, there is a monument at the battlefield there, the, the Battle of Saratoga, um, there's a monument of a boot. And if you don't know anything about the history of this monument and you go visit this battlefield and you see this boot, um, you'll kind of look at it and you'll think, well, what is, why would they have a monument of a boot? And the reason that there's a monument of a boot was that it was to commemorate a general who in a very pivotal moment in this battle rallied the troops and it was really the hero. I mean, just through sheer bravery, rallied the troops and on his horse led a charge and, and brought this charge against uh, the, the British soldiers and in the middle of this charge was shot in the leg. And so because he was shot in the leg, they have a monument of a boot right there. Now you wonder, why wouldn't they have, you know, a statue of the whole person? Why wouldn't they even have his name there? And the reason they don't is because his name was General Benedict Arnold. Now, for those of you who know your history, you know that General Benedict Arnold was the most notorious traitor 
in the history of the American people that that he sold out uh, the American army to the British. And uh, there's a long, big story about how he did that and why he did that. Um, But I, I sometimes wonder, if you think about this, for all of history, Benedict Arnold is considered a traitor. But in this particular moment in history, he was a hero. In this particular moment of history, it was, it was his courage. It was, his, it was his, his bravery and his audacity where he was able to rally the troops and take them on this charge. And, and sometimes I wonder, did he maybe think to himself on his deathbed, if only that bullet would have been a few feet higher, I could have died a hero. If only that bullet would have been just a little bit higher, his name would have been known as somebody brave and somebody courageous and somebody who was a turning point in the Revolutionary War. But because it was only in his leg, he actually outlived his faithfulness. I think that um, it's a scary thought to think that we could actually outlive our faithfulness. And, And really when we look at these kings, and particularly Solomon, we see somebody who, like Benedict Arnold, outlived his faithfulness. For the first three quarters of the football game, I mean, he played an amazing, amazing game. But in the fourth quarter, everything went bad. And I think it's important for us to remember that we are not judged on the starting line. We're judged at the finish line. And scripture is clear that we need to finish strong. And these kings did not finish strong. So uh, Deuteronomy 17 uh, gives some instructions to kings. And uh, I just want to read this very quickly because uh, I think we need to understand a little bit about what scripture called uh, the kings to and know what it is because as we read through Solomon's story, you're going you're gonna to hear some of this and you're going to go, ooh, that doesn't sound good. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, it says this, you are about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. So this is Moses giving law to the people before they enter into the promised land. And when you take it over and you settle there, you may think, We should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. And if this happens, be sure to select a king, the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite, and he may not be a foreigner. And the king must not build a large stable of horses. All right, check. No horses for himself. Or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. So they'd just been brought out of slavery in Egypt. And God's saying, hey, remember how bad the Egyptians were to you? Don't go back to Egypt. Don't do business with Egypt. Don't buy horses from Egypt. Like, am I clear on that? All right, good. Just want to make sure. No Egypt. Egypt's bad. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. And when he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And he must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. And that way, he will learn to fear the Lord, the, 
his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way, and it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. So in other words, you're supposed to copy the law down, write it down in front of a priest, and then you're going to carry that in your back pocket all the time, and you're going to read it on a daily basis, and you're going to know, okay, i got to make sure I don't do that, got to make sure I do that, got to make sure I don't do that, got to make sure I do that. That you're supposed to know that as king. Solomon was supposed to know this stuff as king. He would have known this stuff as king. And so uh, as we jump in uh, First Chronicles, or I'm sorry, Second Chronicles chapter 1. In Second Chronicles chapter 1, uh, the, the story of Solomon is chapters 1 through 9. And so uh, we're not going to uh, read all nine of these chapters. I encourage you to do that. I'm going to hit the highlights. Again, we're going to talk about some of the good stuff, but really I want to focus in on the bad. And so um, we, see, we see these character flaws. Let me just ask you this. How many leaks does it take to sink a boat? One, right? What we see in these kings is they all had at least one major character flaw that, that caused their boat to sink. And so in, in Second Chronicles, just the, the quick overview, um, we see in verses 7 through 12, things actually started out pretty good for Solomon. Um, God shows up to Solomon and God gives him one wish. So it's kind of like Aladdin in the jam. I mean, you know, like except instead of three wishes, it was one. Anything you want, Solomon, go. And this is what we see. That night God appeared to Solomon and he said, what do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. And Solomon replied to God, you showed faithful love to David, my father, and now... You have made me king in this place. Oh, Lord God, please continue to keep your promise to David, my father, for you have made me king over a people numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me the wisdom and the knowledge to lead them properly, for who could possibly govern this great people of yours? And God said to Solomon, because your greatest desire is to help your people, and you did not ask for wealth or riches or fame or even the death of your enemies or a long life, but rather you asked for wisdom and knowledge to properly govern my people, I will certainly give you the wisdom and knowledge you requested. But I will also give you wealth, riches, and fame such as no other king has had before you or will ever have in the future. And verse 14 says this, Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. Uh oh. Like, it's like, oh, red flag, red flag. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. He stationed some of them in the chariot cities and some near him in Jerusalem. The king made silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone, and valuable cedar timbers was as common as a sycamore fig tree that grows in the foothills of Judah. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. Uh-oh. And from Cilicia. The king's traders acquired them from Cilicia at the standard price. And at that time, chariots from Egypt could be purchased for 600 pieces of silver and horses for 150 pieces of silver. And they were then exported to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. And so we already see some clues 
to the turning of Solomon's heart in the direction that he wasn't supposed to go. And it's ironic that Solomon, who was supposed to have all of this wisdom, could make such stupid decisions at moments in his, in his life. And so he was off to a great start. Um, in fact, uh, we, we see there's a lot of other good things uh, in chapter 7. If you flip over to chapter 7, uh, it was Solomon who built the temple. And so David was the one who wanted to build the temple, but God didn't let David build the temple. And it was Solomon who finally had the temple built. Um, and we see in chapter 7, verse 1, kind of the the dedication of the temple. It says, when Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven, burned up the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. And so this is all really good. In verse 14 of chapter 7, God gives Solomon and the people of Israel this amazing promise that many of you have probably heard at different times. But it says this, Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. And so there's these beautiful promises of God that that, hey, you've been faithful, you've been good, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do all these good things for you, and everything is looking really good until you get to chapter 8, verse 11. In chapter 8, verse 11, we start seeing some really big clues to the demise of Solomon. Chapter 8, verse 11 says this, Solomon moved his wife, Pharaoh's daughter. What? What are you doing, man? Like, you're not even supposed to buy horses from Egypt. And now you're marrying the Pharaoh's daughter? What is wrong with you? From the city of David to the new palace he had built for her. So here, here's the thing. God said, don't interact with Egypt. Don't even buy horses from Egypt. And Solomon goes and marries Pharaoh's daughter? Now, politically, this was genius, Politically, this was a great move because it would have made a peace treaty between Egypt and, and Judah. And, and he would have just, it was a politically genius move. Spiritually and theologically, it was a terrible move, which just tells us that sometimes what seems right is not the right thing. Because everything on the outside would have said marrying Pharaoh's daughter was genius. But God said, don't do it. Whatever you do, don't do this. And, and he did it. He went down that road. And so... Um, then we see uh, in verse uh, 13, there's a, there's a story of uh, the, the queen of Sheba that comes and visits. Um, and it's just a, a crazy story about the amazing wealth uh, that they have. I'm sorry, ver chapter 9, we have the, the story of the queen of Sheba that visits. And listen to this in verse 13. It says, each year Solomon received about 25 tons of gold. That's a lot. That's a lot. Now, some of your Bibles um, or a footnote in your Bible will actually maybe say, this is one of the reasons I like the New Living Translation, is the New Living Translation knows that most of us don't know what a talent is in a monetary form. And so instead of talking about units of money as talents, because we don't think of talents as units of money, even though they were in biblical times, um, a, lot of the, a lot of your translations will say there were, he received 666 talents of gold each year. Now, I don't want to like get into that whole lot, 
but that just sounds bad, 666, and that's that, how much he received in gold every year. So, um, but it was 25 tons of gold that he received each year. Verse 17, listen to what it says. Then the king made a huge throne decorated with ivory and overlaid with pure gold. The throne had six steps with a footstool of gold. There were armrests on both sides of the seat. The figures of a lion stood on each side of the throne. And there were also 12 other lions, one standing on each end of the six steps. No other throne in all the world could be compared to it. All of King Solomon's drinking cups were solid gold as were all the utensils in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. They were not made of silver. Like, what would you do if you had ice cream and you were trying to scoop hard ice cream out? That's the kind of stuff I think about. They didn't have ice cream. But I'm like, solid gold? That would bend really easy. Anyway, moving on. They were not made of silver, for silver was considered worthless in Solomon's day. The king had a fleet of trading ships manned by sailors sent to Hiram. Once every three years, the ships returned loaded with gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. So King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on earth. Kings from every nation came to consult him and to hear the wisdom God had given him. Year after year, everyone visited brought him gifts of silver and gold, clothing and weapons, spices, horses and mules. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for his horses and chariots. He had 12,000 horses. He stationed some of them in chariot cities and some near him in Jerusalem. He ruled over all the kings from the Euphrates River in the north to the land of the Philistines and the border of Egypt in the south. The king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone. And valuable cedar timbers was as common as the sycamore fig tree that grew in the foothills of Judah. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and many other countries. Man, 40 years he reigned. Chapter 9 ends uh, his life. And, and as far as Chronicles goes, it doesn't list out a lot of the negative. But you need to go back to the book of Kings to kind of figure out where everything went really south for King Solomon. And so uh, we see in 1 Kings uh, chapter 11, this is what it says. You got to go backwards. 1 Chronicles, 2 Kings, 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 11 says this, now King Solomon loved many foreign women because Pharaoh's daughter, uh, besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab and Ammon and Edom and Sidon from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. So if you're struggling with the math, that's 1,000. Just helping you out. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God. As his father David had been, Solomon worshipped, uh, instead of worshipping the Lord his God, as his father David had been. Uh, Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, 
the goddess of the Sidians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for the burning of incense and sacrificing to their gods. The Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Man, I mean, we've seen some of the good things that Solomon did, some of the wisdom that he had, but man, did he go south towards the end of his life. How can we explain Solomon's clear disobedience? And in your notes, you can just write some of these down. Um, We'll just quickly go through these. But uh, whenever you try to explain someone else's sin, I always think about the response that Napoleon gave supposedly when someone asked Napoleon, why did you decide to invade Russia? Napoleon's uh, famous supposed response was, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It, for those of you who don't know, it was not a good idea to try to invade Russia. It didn't go well for Napoleon. Um, but whenever, whenever you try to explain somebody else's sin, whenever you try to explain your own sin, isn't that always the case? Whenever someone chooses sin, someone chooses to go against God's best, isn't it always the case that you just go, well, it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. It always ends bad, but at the moment, it seemed like a good idea. And I, I don't know what it was for Solomon, uh, but, but I can imagine Solomon later in his life looked back and said, it seemed like a good idea to marry those 700 royal wives and have those 300 concubines. And it, it seemed like a good idea to collect all those horses. And it seemed like a good idea to have all this wealth. Maybe uh, in your notes you write down, perhaps he justified his behavior as an act of foreign policy. Um, I mean, again, it was politically smart. 700 foreign wives that were all of royal lineage, that means he had 700 peace treaties with 700 nations all around. I mean, every, every single nation that he could have possibly had a peace treaty with, he was marrying one of these royal lineage. And, and it was just, it was politically savvy to do this in this day. So it might have been a foreign policy. Uh, perhaps he felt like he was above the law. I mean, I know that we never do that kind of stuff. We never say, well, I know this applies to everybody else, but in my case, I mean, you know, I know that you're supposed to stop at the stop sign, but I'm in a hurry, so rolling through as I pause a little bit, I mean, that's okay for me right now, right? I mean, we we justify in these ways. Um, Perhaps he found a way to justify his behavior. It was only a little compromise. I mean, God, I'm doing all these good things for you. I'm building the temple. I'm, I'm doing all these good things. I mean, surely it's okay if I just kind of partake over here in some things that I know you said don't do. And maybe he felt like he was immune to being led astray. Now, here's, this is an interesting one because I think particularly when you look at this passage in Kings, And you look at part of his issue was that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, there was was some sexual sin that was driving some of this. And I think 
maybe Solomon thought, I'm immune to this. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be led astray. And I know God said, don't marry these women that are outsiders and foreign women, but, but it'll be okay for me. It won't, it won't affect me. It won't impact me. And I think um, it's a good reminder for us, particularly when we talk about sexual sin, that we need to understand um, that the strongest man in the Bible, Samson, fell to sexual sin. The wisest man in the Bible, Solomon, fell to sexual sin. The godliest man in the Bible, the, the Bible says David was a man after God's own heart, fell to sexual sin with Bathsheba. And so I think it's really important for us to just recognize how dare we say, I'm above this, I'm immune to this, I'm, I, I can't fall into this dangerous area. Uh, on the other hand, what we need to do is we need to say, because the strongest and the wisest and the godliest fell in this area, I need to do everything I can do to put measures in place to protect myself. And so this is kind of a little sidebar, but I would just say, if, if you don't know what covenant eyes is, and if you don't have covenant eyes on your devices, you should consider that. Particularly men, you should say, hey, what can I do to live really transparent? And if you have kids, you should be thinking about how can you help them live as transparently as they can with covenant eyes so that you're being accountable for them and that you're looking at the things they're looking at. And you have people that are looking at the things you're looking at. Um, it's an amazing, amazing software. If you're married, you should never, ever be alone with a member of the opposite sex. When I was a military chaplain, every time I counseled somebody who had an affair, it always started with, well, it started with just a cup of coffee. We were just friends. We would just have lunch every now and then. It, that's how they all start. So just make a decision if you're married that you're never going to be alone with a member of the op opposite sex. And if you never have that cup of coffee, then you'll never go down a road that you shouldn't go down. If you're single, stay vertical, not horizontal, all right? Have clear endings to the date, all right? Don't have sleepovers, all right? Don't, you know, don't, I'm just going to sleep on the couch. No, don't do that. Like, make sure when it's over, it's over. Like, you know, have a date and then separate, all right? Um, and that rhymed. That wasn't even intentional. Um, <laughs> sexual purity matters. It was the demise of Solomon. It was the demise of the strongest man, the wisest man, and the godliest man. We need to be careful and we need to put whatever measures we can around us to protect us from going down roads. Uh, Solomon's fatal flaw in your notes, you can write this down. Solomon was never content. He never had enough. He always wanted more, more, more. He wanted more women. He wanted more money. He wanted more power. He wanted more fame. He wanted more knowledge. He wanted more reputation. And I, I, the question that I want to ask you is what is in your life that you're saying, if I could just get more of that, I'd be happy. If I could just get more of this, I'd be content. And it'll be different than it was for Solomon probably, but there are things in your life where you have bought into this lie where you've said, if I could just get this, I'd be happy. Solomon had uh, what's called destination disease. Destination disease is this. 
And, and we start getting destination disease really young. When you're in like third or fourth grade, you start to get destination disease because you say, you know what? When I'm in fifth grade, like that's, that's where all the cool things happen when you're in fifth grade. I mean, fifth grade, that's what I'm going to be so happy when I get to fifth grade. I'll be, that, that's the destination that'll make me happy. And you know what you get to fifth grade and you know what you discover? You discover that um, it's not fifth grade, it's middle school. I mean, when you get to, then you're like in your fifth grade, you're like, man, when I get to middle school, whoo, it's going to be good. And you know what you discover when you get to middle school? Middle school stinks. It stinks. Middle school is awful. It's awful. But when you're in middle school, you're like, oh man, if only, if only I, I mean, when I get to high school, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. And then you get into high school and you're like, when I'm a senior in high school, then it's going to be good. And, and then when you're a senior in high school, it's like, well, when I get out of the house or when I get to college or that's where I'm going to be happy and I'm going to be content. And then you get out of the house and you get to college and you discover, oh man, maybe it's marriage. I mean, maybe when I get married, then everything will just be great. And, and then you get married and you're like, maybe it's kids. Like maybe, maybe when I have kids, it'll all be great and it'll be perfect. And like, I'll just be content. And, and then you have kids and it's like, maybe when they're gone, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe when they're gone, it'll be, you know, and then and it's like, maybe it's retirement. And, and listen, this is what, you can miss your whole life with destination disease. You can miss your whole life chasing after something. Listen, in Ecclesiastes 12 verses 8 and in verses 13 and 14, the author of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. Solomon says this, everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God, obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. You can miss your whole life chasing after the things of this world, and you'll never be content. Solomon had more money than you'll ever have. He had more power than you'll ever have. He had more women than you'll ever have. He had everything that the world says, if you had this, you'll be happy. And he said, it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. So God help us to learn to be content and to learn to find our contentment in him and not the things of this world. I, I want to pray for us. And then we'll close with a song. Bow your heads with me. Father, I just, I pray that you would be with each and every person here. Lord, we have, we've looked at the life of Solomon. We've, we've seen some good things that he did. We've seen some, some wonderful things that he was a part of. But Lord, he, he made some really bad choices and decisions. And God, I pray that uh, as, as we are reflecting on our own life and the areas where we are disobeying maybe some things that we know clearly you want us to say yes to you and and we're saying but God I've got a lot of good reasons I've got a lot of good reasons why I'm going against your will I've got a lot of good excuses of why I'm it seems like a good idea for me to go in this direction God I pray that you would help us understand that whenever we go against your will it always leads to destruction and pain and hurt 
And whenever you give us a law, it's not because you want to keep us from good things. It's because you want to protect us from pain and hurt. And so, Lord, I pray that if there are areas in our life that we're going down roads that we shouldn't go, whether we're young here or whether we're old here, that you would help us follow you fully and turn back to you and repent and and ask for forgiveness and, and go in the direction that you're calling us to go. God, I pray if there's some who are here, some who are watching online and they just haven't surrendered their life to you yet and they're they're chasing after all kinds of things that the world says will make them happy and they, they haven't found peace and they haven't found contentment, God, I pray that today would be the day where they would just turn to you and say, God, will you fill my void in my life? Will you forgive me of my sins? Will you be Lord? Will you help me find peace and contentment in you because I'm not finding it in this world? God, as we continue to surrender to you, help us to do that daily, every single day to just say, God, not my will, but yours, not my life, but yours. God, you are my king and I want to follow you fully. And Lord, we'll give you the praise when you help us do just that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand together? Let's close by singing together.